Well, good morning, church family. Of course, we're excited to be here to worship today. Um, I'm excited for today. We've got a couple of guests that I would like to introduce you to. Uh, one of them doesn't know I'm going to introduce him. Both of them you probably know or have seen. The first one is Pastor DeAndre Poole. DeAndre, where, will you just stand up? Will you, I know it's awkward. I know. This is DeAndre. If you don't know DeAndre, I just want to point him out to you. Uh, he is the pastor of... Uh, Greater New Destiny. Am I right there? All right. Thank you, Pastor. Uh, Pastor of Greater New Destiny, they will be using the Freedom Building uh, for the foreseeable future uh, as we continue to work together and partner together uh, to reach more people in this community and throughout the world. And so excited. I just wanted you to meet uh, Pastor DeAndre for just a moment. You're, you're good, bro. You don't have to, unless you want to stand the whole time, we're okay with that. So if you're unfamiliar with that, we have, uh, we have agreed as a church to allow their church to use those facilities until they can find a more permanent location. And so we are excited to be partnering with you, brother, and your church, and uh, excited about the future and what that looks like. Also, I want to introduce to you probably someone you may know already. Uh, this is Pastor Corey Flanagan. Corey, you go ahead and come up here, and, uh, and I'm going to get out of the way. Uh, Corey's a pastor at First Baptist Raton. I may be saying that wrong. I'll let him correct me. Uh, in New Mexico, uh, he is the son of some folks here, uh, Sherry and Mike Flanagan, uh, brother to Courtney. And so obviously he's got a lot of ties here. You've probably met him before, but we're excited. He's in town. He thought he was going to relax for a couple of weeks, uh, but we decided he should work if he's here. And so he's going to be sharing this morning. Excited to hear him open up the word and, uh, and share what God uh, has on his heart this morning. So I'm going to get out of the way. Brother, have at it. It's all, all you. Right. Thank you, Brother Danny. It's definitely an honor to be back uh, in my home church, a uh, church that's very uh, special to me in the fact of uh, not only did I surrender to the ministry in this church, but also a lot of spiritual growth and formation uh, in this church as well. So again, it is an honor to be before you this morning. But if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been told something and did not know how to react to it? You've been given some bit of news and you don't know if you should be happy, sad, excited, or mad. Uh, maybe you hear the news or, or that information you've been given, you think, I already knew that. Or should I have already known that? Or what do you want me to do with this? You, we, we watch the news, we read the news. I'm not sure if we should be shocked anymore by what we hear or what we read. But we are given some news in the first part of 1 Peter chapter 1, some information that he lays out for us. And what Peter does is that he paints this beautiful picture of the salvation that God has given and provided us through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we see how we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power is being guarded for you by faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That's how Peter starts off his letter and, and weaving this tapestry. And, and we read how we have obtained the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. But now that we know that, now that we read that, now that Peter has shared that with us, now, now what? 
What do we do with that information that has been given to us? Should knowing this cause our lives to look any differently than they do? Should there be any response in light of that wonderful truth? There should be a response to understanding what God has done, is doing, and will continue to do for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. But how are we responding to this beauty? What does it mean when Peter says to set our hope? What does it mean when Peter says to be holy as I am holy? Our passage today will tell us what our response should be in light of the beauty of this salvation. Today, as we look at our passage, I want us to focus on three things. I want us to focus on our hope, our holiness, and our accountability to God. Our hope, our holiness, and our accountability to God. Let's look at our passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially and according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Let's pray. Father God, we come before your word and I pray that our hearts are fully submitted to it. God, I pray that we just open up our hearts and our ears to listen to what you are revealing to us today. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we think about verse 13, I want us to focus on our hope. And as we look at the beginning of our passage, we find a word at the very beginning that's really very important that a lot of times if you're reading through your Bible, you may skip over, not think anything about. It's that, that little word, therefore. Anytime you're going through the scriptures and you come across that word, you always have to ask, what is it there for? Because what it does, it points us back to a truth or back to some information that the writer has already revealed, has already talked about. And of course, as I mentioned before, Peter is writing of the beauty of our salvation, of what God is doing, has done, and will continue to do in Jesus Christ. So basically, now that you know this, do this. Because this is what Christ has done for you, this is what your life should look like and be like. And since God has saved us through Christ, this is how we are to live our lives, how our Christian life and our walk should look. And in verse 13, Peter gives three quick commands. He says, prepare your minds for actions. Be sober-minded. Set your hope now, when he says prepare your minds for action, this Greek verb really carries an interesting meaning that really may be lost to us in the translation, maybe lost to us in our 21st century context. And some of your translations may say, gird up the loins of your mind. What in the world does that mean? Of course, it, it carries an idea that the people during this time would have understood. When we think about that time period, when we think about the clothing choice of what they would have wore, they would have been wearing tunics, a, a, a cloak that would have been flowing, hard to walk a long distance in, hard to do any work in. You're thinking, why would it be hard to do that? Well, just because of the flowing nature, it could easily get caught up in your feet, get, get hung up on something. So what did they do? They girded up their loins. They would take that tunic, they would grab the bottom of it, pull it between their legs, and tuck it in their belt so that now they are free from any hindrance 
that would keep them from doing the task at hand. So when we think about our Christian lives, what are we doing to prepare our minds for actions? What are we doing to gird up the loins of our minds? What are we doing to free our minds from any hindrance that would cause us to stumble, cause us to live ineffectively or inefficiently regarding our faith before the world? This is how Scripture describes what we should be doing daily. Paul says this in Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. See, Paul tells us not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, that we are to transform, to renew our minds daily. Because as believers, as Christians, we are no longer to conform ourselves to the present age. We are no longer to conform ourselves to our former ignorance before we knew Christ. And Paul told and reminded the Galatians that we are living presently in an evil age. So since we are citizens of heaven, we are to set our minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. So in light of these facts, the world The things of the world cannot, they must not serve as the model for our Christian living. They cannot serve as the model that we follow after. We cannot allow the things of this world to distract us and be a hindrance as we prepare our minds to love and worship and serve God while we are also loving and serving each other. So the question becomes, what is that which hinders you? What are the things that cause distraction for you that keeps you from serving well? One thing I think we can all relate to is probably something that's in our pockets right now, something that may be in your purse, something that you may even be reading scripture off of, and that is our cell phones. How many times have we caught ourselves looking at that screen throughout the day? Or we go to a restaurant and we see other people eating and all we see them do instead of communicating with one another is just staring down at that screen. One of the things I love about my associate pastor, Ben Campbell, is the convictions he has regarding his cell phone. Now, for most of us, if our cell phone dings, what are we going to do? We're going to look at it. Who's texting me? What email has come through? What notification do I have? Not Ben. Don't text Ben because Ben's not going to text you back because Ben's not looking at his phone. Ben's phone's either in his pocket or in a drawer, and he has set times throughout the day that he will then check his phone, respond to any emails, respond to any text, to make sure that he is preparing his mind for action, that he is putting aside any hindrance that would keep him from running his race well, to keep him from living ineffectively. We have not only have to prepare our minds though, but Peter then gives the next commands and says that we have to be sober-minded. Now, this idea of being sober-minded, Peter probably did mean for the literal translation as far as to be free uh, from drunkenness, free from being consumed with drunkenness, not being able to make clear judgments. It has this idea of being, have a presence of mind, being self-controlled, uninfluenced by intoxicants, to have one's wits about them. 
But not only did it have that literal definition, but when Peter says sober-minded, there was also a figurative definition, which meant to be free from illusion, free from the intoxicating influences of sin. So the next question we have to ask ourselves as believers is, am I truly free from the intoxicating influences of the sin around me? The things I read, the things I watch, the things I speak upon, the things I participate in, because am I being different? When I do those things, am I being different from the world or am I trying to be a part of the world? The things that I immerse myself in, is it due to the intoxicating influence of the sin around me? Because we cannot prepare our minds for action and we cannot be sober-minded if our minds are under the influence of sin. If you are constantly thinking about sin, if you are devising ways to participate in sin, if you are trying to figure out how you can get away with sinning without anybody knowing, it almost sounds as if there has not been a renewal of your mind by God. It would seem as if there has not been a spiritual rebirth because Scripture says in 1 John 3, 9, the apostle says, no one born of God does what? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. One thing we have to do as believers, we have to die to sin every single day. Not just when we feel like it, just when it's convenient, when somebody brings it to our attention. Every single day. We have to examine our lives, we have to examine our minds, and see what it is that is influencing us. Is it God and his word, or is it the world in sin? Then we get to the last command here in verse 13, and Peter says, set your hope. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, as I mentioned before, back at the beginning of this letter in in verses 3 through 5, it speaks to this idea is, but Again, what we have to ask ourselves is what we have our hope in. Is it something that we are merely wishing would happen, but we really know there's not a reasonable expectation that it will? Or do we have a confident expectation that it will indeed happen for us? Because Peter is not telling his readers that having faith in Jesus is just on a wing and a prayer. Our faith is just not wishful thinking. It is not the many times dead hope that people have, let's say, when they go and buy a lottery ticket. Do you know that you have a one in 300 million chance of winning the lottery? That's not very good odds. You know what you have better odds of happening to you? Being struck by lightning. You have a one in one million chance of being struck by lightning. So you have a 300 times greater chance to be walking down the road, get struck by lightning than you do to go buy a lottery ticket, hoping that that will change your life. Because what Peter is is doing, he's continuing again this idea that he said in verse 3 of that we are born again to a living hope. This is why we can set our hope on Christ. Because this Greek word of setting our hope literally means actively waiting for God's fulfillment about the faith that he is in birth through the power of his love in the believer. So we are actively waiting on that which will be revealed at the coming of Christ, that salvation that he will bring. And we see in Hebrews, it talks about the faith that produces that hope that we have in Christ. 
which says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. See, we are hoping for salvation, and our faith is the assurance that that salvation will happen. That faith is the assurance that if I put my full trust in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done, when I close my eyes in death or Jesus Christ comes back, that I will stand before God justified, that I will stand before God righteous. Our hope and our faith and the assurance that it brings means that I can trust Scripture when it says all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That I can trust Scripture when it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That I can trust Scripture when it says there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That I can trust Scripture when it says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of unrighteousness. That I can trust Scripture when it says, if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, then we have been born of God. Because our hope is not just rooted in anything. Our hope, that confident expectation is rooted in the resurrected Jesus Christ. And once more, the question becomes, where does our hope lie, church? What is our hope based in? Who is our hope in? Have you tried to source your hope in your job? I'm sure we can all relate in some form or fashion. You've probably lost a job some some time in your life. Have you sourced your hope in your family, your spouse, your children? I think we can all agree at some point in our lives, our family, our spouse, our kids have let us down, have disappointed us. Have we tried to source our hope in the things of this world? Because they will always let you down. Have you tried to source your hope in our governing institutions? I hope not. Have you tried to source your hope in your church family? Because let me go ahead and tell you, your pastors, your Sunday school teachers, your deacons, all your volunteers, everybody that is sitting in this room at some point will disappoint you. At some point will let you down in some form or fashion. Because in all these things, they eventually fail us. Because that's not where our hope is supposed to be rooted in. This is what Paul says in Romans 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, because of our faith in Christ, we stand before God in right standing. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Church, we must set our hope in Christ and Christ alone. He is the only one who will never let us down, who will never disappoint us, who will never put us to shame. But after Peter gives these three quick commands in verse 13, this idea of preparing your minds, being sober-minded, and through that, setting your hope on Christ, Peter continues to highlight the living out of our Christian walk now in holiness, 
which leads to our second point in verse 14, verses 14 through 16. So right off in verse 14, Peter says to his readers as well as us today, calling them to be obedient children. Now, since we have been adopted into God's kingdom and he is now our father, we as his children are to follow that which he has commanded us to do. And while we're here on this earth, we have to, as I mentioned earlier, we have to fight the desires of sin. Because though we are free from the power of sin, though we are free from the bondage of sin, we still face the temptation of sin everywhere we go. Because first off, when we think about being obedient, being being obedient is a matter of love for God. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We show God that we love him by being faithful in all that he has called us to do. And that should make sense to us because as we read through the gospels, as we read through scripture, we know that the love that God gives us as his children is a demonstrated love. It's not just a simple, I love you and I hope for the best, but is a demonstrated love in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. So how much more, if God demonstrates his love for us, should we demonstrate our love for him by being obedient children? Because we are no longer the rebellious enemies of God. We've been adopted into his family, and just as we expect our own earthly children to listen to us, so our Heavenly Father expects us to listen to him and do what he has called us to do. But secondly, by the grace of Christ and the strength of his spirit, we fight to kill sin every day in our life. Jesus told those who were following him this in Luke 9, says, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. What does it mean to take up our cross daily? It means every day that we wake up, sin is crouching at our door. Sin is tapping on our shoulders. Sin is saying, hey, you remember me? We used to have fun times. Come on back. We'll have fun times again. But every single day, we have to take up our cross and crucify our wants, wills, and desires and replace them with the wants, wills, and desires of God. Instead of me waking up and saying, okay, what do I want to do today? What is my heart desire to do? No, I have to wake up and say, God, what is it that you want me to do today? What are your desires? What is your will for my life? Because every single day, we should be striving and wanting to please our Heavenly Father. Because we love Him, we should want to be obedient. Because when we do these things, When we are obedient children, we are following after God with everything that we have. We are setting ourselves apart from the world. And of course, this is the idea and command that comes from verse 15 about being holy when Peter says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now, we may hear this word holy and may be sitting there thinking, what does that mean? I've heard it before. Maybe I've heard the pastor talk about it. I've come across it in my readings. But what does it mean to be holy? To be holy means to be set apart. It literally carries the idea of being different from the world and like the Lord. A.W. Tozer said it this way, quote, Holiness, as taught in scriptures, is not based upon knowledge on our part. Rather, it is based upon the resurrected Christ indwelling us and changing us into his 
likeness. Paul would say something similar in 1 Corinthians 1 when he says, it is because of the Father that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. It is because we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we are able to be holy before the Lord, but not only that, but to walk in holiness. Now, this isn't just a call to holiness in the assembly of the saints, because let's all be honest, it's easy to be holy, or at least pretend to be holy while we are here. We can come in and and be hospitable. We can come in and be kind and be loving and and seem as if we're joyful. But yet we leave this building and all of a sudden holiness just goes out the door. All of a sudden it's like back back to usual. No, Peter says that we are to be holy in all of our conduct. And the word for conduct carries the idea of a changing of outward behavior that is dictated by inner beliefs. What you believe will be reflected in how you act. What you believe about the scriptures, what you believe about Christ, about the Father, about the Spirit, what you believe is how you will act every single day. If you don't trust the scriptures, if you don't trust Christ, if you are not submissive to the scriptures and its authority, it will be reflected in your everyday life because the Lord Jesus Christ has not saved us to go back to our former way of life. He didn't bring us out of darkness into marvelous light just for us to go back to the darkness. The Lord Jesus Christ has saved us not to continue and look and act as the world does. That is not holiness. The Lord Jesus Christ has saved us not to continue in the desires of our flesh, to keep going back to what we've been saved out of. No, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has saved us to reflect the character of a holy God that we now love and follow that we are now obedient to. But yet for some, there is still an unwillingness to submit fully to Christ. It's as if we want to keep one foot in the kingdom of darkness while keeping the other in the kingdom of light. We still want to participate in worldly endeavors and practices, yet have the benefits of a saving relationship with God. Too often what I have seen happen is people, they don't want God, they just don't want to go to hell. It's called escapism. They don't want to go to hell, but okay, if the opposite of that is to be with God, then yes, sign me up. Whatever I have to do to avoid that. And yet their life is not reflecting a relationship with God. Their life is not reflecting a life changed by Jesus Christ, that they have been born again to a living hope, that they are walking in holiness. Leonard Ravenhill would say it this way. We live in a day when people are more disturbed if you talk about holiness than if you talk about sinfulness. It is easier for the pastor to come up here and say, don't do this, don't do that. You say, all right, pastor, I'll try not to do that. It's another thing to say, you need to look like Jesus every single day. You need to imitate Christ every single day. Your life should be a reflection of your heavenly father. Whoa, pastor, that's asking a little too much there. I can, I can pass on the sinning and maybe the, 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 the lying and the stealing. I, I can pass on that, but don't expect any more of me. But it's not as if, it's not the pastor that ex, is expecting more. It is God who expects more of his children. 
Since we are exiles in this world, since we do not belong to this world, when we strive to walk in holiness by the grace of Christ, let me go ahead and tell you something. You're going to stick out like a sore thumb. When you start to set yourself apart from this world, when you're not participating in the sins that you used to participate in, maybe you're not hanging out with the same people you used to hang out with, people are going to notice. People are going to look at you funny. People are going to whisper about you. People are not even going to want to be around you. Maybe even those within the church. Because in my experience, I found that when I'm around somebody that truly is desiring to live a holy life, that is truly desiring to, to imitate Christ, it provokes two responses within me. Either it encourages and exhorts me to do the same, or I fall under such conviction that I want to go the other way. If we truly want to be holy, church, we will stick out because, again, the idea is to be different, is to be set apart. And Peter brought this idea up earlier in the chapter that we are in this world, but we are actually not of this world. That's why he calls us exiles, strangers. We are just passing through till we get to that better far off country. We live lives to God and his will, not to the world, not to sin, and not to self. And you may be asking, what basis does Peter or what basis do you, pastor, or anyone else have to tell me this, to give me this command? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Peter gives us the reason in quoting Leviticus 11.44 when he says, since it is written. So this is God talking to his people in Leviticus. He says, you shall be holy for I am holy. God tells his people in the Old Testament. God tells his people as we see here in the New Testament. Since he is holy and we are now his people, we are to reflect his characteristic. We are to reflect his attribute of holiness, of being set apart. We are to reflect our Father to this world. And through the sanctification of the Word of God and His Spirit, we should be becoming more and more conformed to the image of the Son. You should look a little bit more like Jesus today than you did yesterday, than you did a year ago, than you did five years ago. It is for no other reason, though, than to please and glorify our Father in heaven. That's it. And in doing this, we show that our faith, that Christianity is of the utmost importance to us and not the fleeting pleasures of sin that are found in this world today. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, Christianity, if, is, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Are we trying to be halfway holy? That we put on a good front when we come, we, we, we dress nice, like, yes, I have everything together, I, I have all my I's dotted, my T's crossed. But yet we leave here and we look just like the world. You know, we come to the gathering of the church, we may even read our Bibles from time to time, but yet outside of this gathering, whether in our homes or places of work, we still bear the stain of sin of this world and our former sinful self. Because Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 38, he says, and anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Church, let us found being obedient children 
and walking in holiness apart from the trappings of this world. Because ultimately, and this leads to my last point, ultimately, we are accountable to God. We find this in verse 17, our accountability to Him. Now, whether we may or may not have had a good relationship with our earthly father, there was probably a time in our life where you wanted to please your father. You wanted him to be proud of you. Now, I know my dad isn't perfect, but I still, even to this day, want to be like him. Even to this day, want him to be proud of me. But as much as I love my earthly father, my heavenly father has given me so much more. God loves me perfectly. He has given me every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has saved me to the uttermost. He has cleansed me from unrighteousness through the blood of his son. He has adopted me. He has made me one who was once unworthy. He has made me worthy. And Peter probably has this in mind here as he's talking about the present life and even the life to come. Because God is not only the father of his people, but God is also the judge. Judging believers not for salvation, not for being able to come in his presence justified, but on how we lived our life for him. How we use the good gifts he gave us for his glory and for the edification of the church. Paul talks about this, that as believers we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give account of how we lived our Christian life. Again, Peter reminds his readers of our conduct before God while here on this earth. And the fear that he is speaking of is not this paralyzing terror, but a fear of God's discipline, a fear of fatherly displeasure. I did not want to be disciplined by my dad. Still don't. One, because it was a very unpleasant experience. Things that are still vivid in my mind. But two, it meant that I'd let him down and he was displeased with me. How much more should we show a humble and reverent fear toward our Heavenly Father? That our concern is to be holy, always seeking to please God and not man. It should be a reverence in all that should characterize, characterize the lives of believers during their exile on this earth, during this journey as we are merely passing through. Yes, we are accountable to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but ultimately, we are all accountable to God, and we should live that way every day of our lives. Because there are things that I do and think that you'll never know about, and vice versa, but God knows all. God in his omniscience, and his omnipresence, God knows all. And we will give an account for that. But church, again, what or who have we placed our hope in? What is it are we sourcing our hope from? What or who are we living for? It's easy to live for self. It's easy to live for our families. It's easy to live for something else other than what we have been called to. Who are we ultimately seeking to please in this life? For those that are people pleasers, that's hard. Because even for those that are not, still 
there's a small part of us that seeks the approval of others. If the questions, or if the answers to these questions isn't God, whether you're a believer today or you're even an unbeliever, we need to repent of this. Going back to the C.S. Lewis quote, this, as he's talking about being Christianity, our faith, this is either of the greatest importance to us or it can be of the least importance, but it can't be halfway. We can't straddle the fence. We can't try to walk in holiness and sinfulness at the same time because it doesn't work. We too often live as if it is just partly important or maybe mostly important to us. We too often compartmentalize our faith to be lived out during a certain part of the week and that is it. Sunday is church day. Sunday is the day that I be holy and maybe even Wednesday. But all the other days, I can live however I want. That's family time. That's recreational time. That's some other time besides the Lord's. And what we show to the world, what we show to the unbelieving world that is looking for us to stumble, that is looking for us to mess up, so they can say, ha-ha, see there, it's not that important to you, so it's not that important to me. Church, we should be holy and different. Not that we're walking with our chest out because we should be the most humble people in the world because you did not deserve the salvation that God gave you. You deserved everlasting punishment in hell. That's what you deserved. If God was fair, that's what he would do. Yeah, God is merciful. God is gracious. And it is only because God is that that we are able to stand before him justified through his son, Jesus Christ. Not any merit of our own, When we leave this building today, tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever you go back to work, whenever you go back to school, if you truly are a child of God, if you truly have put your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ, people should know it. Not because you have a big sign, not because you're trumpeting it, because they see your life as different. They see your life as holy. They see your life as set apart. Because it is easy to compartmentalize. It is easy in our minds to justify, okay, I act this way on this day, act this way on other days. No, our faith should permeate every aspect of our lives. Whether we are around people or we are by ourselves. Whether we are with our family or we with our coworkers. There should be a consistency there as we strive every day to crucify our sins and follow God. Because what is the most important thing in your life? Think about that. What is the one thing that you can't stand to lose? What do you spend the majority of your time on? What do you spend the majority of your effort on? What do you spend the majority of your money on? Whatever the answer is to those questions, that is what's most important. church as God has saved us in Jesus Christ. May we walk accordingly in holiness, setting our hope in God and God alone, always seeking to please him and him alone, because that's all that matters. Let's pray. Father God, you are good and you are holy. And Lord, we thank you for the life that you have given us in Jesus Christ. 
And Lord, I pray that every single day that you give us breath, Lord, every single day that you give us the beating of our hearts is a day that we seek to glorify you. Lord, as the Apostle Paul says, whether we eat or whether we drink, whatever we do, may it be for your glory. And Lord, may the world see that, not because of us, but Lord, to give you glory. Jesus says that may we do good deeds before men so that they see them and not give praise to us, but give glory back to you. May that be our aim every single day to please you, to love you, to be obedient, to be faithful, to deny ourselves, but simply seek to please our Father. Nothing more, nothing less. And God, forgive us when we don't. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.